this is early days and this is the first major blackout that we've been through and the policy community and the legislative community in California is really just starting to pivot to this issue and to think about the full significance of what has occurred and what's likely to recur on a regular basis, even this year in California. Yeah, I think where we may have some common ground here, Shane, is like if the Democrats can't do it here, it doesn't give me a lot of hope that we can do it at the national level. I mean, if we can't, we have a Democratic supermajority, a progressive Democratic governor, and a climate crisis on our hands. So if we can't deal, if we can't solve that here with, with, those, with that sort of environment, how are we going to do it at the federal level? California's largest utility intentionally shut off power to roughly 2 million residents last week in an effort to avoid sparking a potentially deadly wildfire. There was no blaze, but tempers are flaring. So how do we get to this point, and how will politicians manage through the increasing risk that wildfires present? Also, how did Democrats do in the latest debate? We discuss all of the above in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. Now, before we get into this episode, I want to quickly let you know that we'll be recording a live show at UC San Diego on Monday, October 21st. The event begins at 5 p.m. and it's free. You just need to sign up via the link in our show notes. If you're in the San Diego area, please come join us. We will be discussing how cities of various political stripes, like San Diego, are leading on climate action and clean energy adoption. And if you can't make it, no worries. We'll be bringing that conversation to the podcast feed later next week. With that, on with the show. Brandon, you missed the Nats game tonight to be here in Los Angeles for an Elizabeth Warren event. How are you feeling right now? So I'm supporting Elizabeth Warren. Oh, it comes out. Breaking news. (laughs) It was not an impulsive decision. I've been thinking about it for a long time. Uh, at another podcast, I can go into why, uh, but I'm organizing an energy and climate change group, uh, for the campaign, just volunteering. And we hosted a launch event tonight, uh, that also served as a debate watch party. Uh, but for many of our listeners may know, I am a obsessive Washington nationals fan. I lived across the street from the stadium uh, I was a season ticket holder for over 10 years up until this year. So everything that happened tonight with the Nats winning to go to the World Series was the night I was waiting for for like over a decade. And instead of being there with all of my friends and celebrating this great team that I was hoping for, I instead was hosting an Elizabeth Warren event. So that's how committed I am to her. That's how much love I have for wow. her candidacy. Lots, lots to dig into here. Your commitment to the Washington Nationals. Great. That's good to know. Get that on the record, uh, which I think you've actually talked about before. Um, and then, yeah, noting that you are working with the Warren campaign. So we will dig into that. And for our audience, that was Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat on this show obviously. Uh, He is a former chief of staff of the Department of Energy and a partner at Boundary Stone Partners. And we are currently sitting here at a clean energy office where you held this viewing tonight. I was here to see how that went down. And it was interesting to see people come out and real mobilization happening and feels like an election now. 
And on the line here, uh, he's he's dialing in from home, is Shane Skelton, our Republican. He is a partner at S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. Shane, what did you make of the debates tonight? Did you catch any of it? Well, first of all, thank you for clarifying, because when you said we were at an Elizabeth Warren event, I felt like I was going to have to jump in and say, not me, not me, not me. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I thought the debate was interesting. Actually, um, I got to watch more of it in real time than I expected. Typically, my kids won't allow me to do that. Uh, but I got to watch most of it, and then I could I could watch the beginning part that I missed, um, you know, via a record. A record. What am I like? Ninety years old? Uh, it was recorded. <laughs> on you should my, listen my to Joe Biden ER. last debate. But, uh, he told everyone to uh, turn on the record players. It, it, it's interesting to me, and you know, I, I view it so much differently than you all do because I'm sort of like an outside observer. I don't, you know, have a, any skin in the game. I don't really care which candidate wins the the Democratic primary, but. Uh, I thought it was interesting to see, you know, where they focused and what they talked about. Obviously, as someone who works in energy and climate, I would like to see more discussion there. But it was an interesting debate. It was a lively debate. And like, you know, frankly speaking, from a Democratic perspective, and I'm not one, but just trying to view the world through their lens. I thought it was a more productive debate than I've seen in the past where there was, you know, two nights with 10 people talking about, you know, God knows what. Uh, and in this case, it seemed like they were able to, you know, get relatively focused on certain issues and, and, and sort of parse some of the differences between the candidates. You know, consistent with sort of the theme of our show, if you had money on, there would be more discussion of John McCain at this debate than there was of climate change. I would I would have lost that bet. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I think climate change, I don't think that term itself came up like a couple of times. I know that Buttigieg and Sanders mentioned it earlier on, making an interesting point that Democrats need to watch for what happens after Trump, that they can't be so focused on Trump that they're not policymaking for the day after his presidency ends, whether that's, you know, in 2021 or after that. So that's how climate came up, came up there. And then I think Warren mentioned it or mentioned fossil fuel companies and then Sanders did too. And the Green New Deal came up from Bernie Sanders and, and Castro. But yeah, there was really few mentions overall. Yeah, they, they almost seem to be incidental, right? So the, the only ones that stuck out to me are when, you know, Tom Steyer was talking about the Syria situation and saying that we're going to need to have trust from our international allies to solve a lot of our biggest problems, climate being one of them. Um, and then also, you know, in the antitrust debate, Bernie elaborated a little bit on, you know, he thought that it, it's not just tech companies that should be broken up, but he went into fossil fuel companies. Um, and he I don't think he used the words climate change, but it seemed pretty clear to me that's what he was getting at. But they really seemed like off the cuff remarks from candidates who were answering unrelated questions. I, I didn't see, unless I missed it, anything directly related to climate, energy, the environment, uh, or anything close to that. I actually grabbed a little bit of the audio of some of the candidates addressing climate. Here's what they had to say. The first day the sun comes up after Donald Trump has been president, it starts out feeling like a happy thought. This particular brand of chaos and corruption will be over, but really think about where we'll be vulnerable even more torn apart by politics than we are right now. And these big issues, from the economy to climate change, have not taken a vacation during the impeachment process. If the American people believe that all we were doing is taking on Trump, and we're forgetting that 87 million Americans are uninsured or underinsured, we're forgetting about the existential threat of climate change. We are forgetting about the fact that half of our people are living paycheck to paycheck. Any problem that we're going to do, but specifically climate, we're going to have to lead the world morally, we're going to have to lead it technologically, financially, and commercially. 
This is the proof that this kind of America first, go it alone, trust nobody and be untrustworthy is the worst idea I've ever heard. And I would change it on day one in every single way. So you heard there from Buttigieg, Sanders, and Steyer. I tried to find instances of female candidates addressing climate change or clean energy, but it just didn't come up. Speaking of Steyer, tonight was his first night on the debate stage. We had him on the show in the past. He talked about why he's running for president, you know, really wanting to keep climate change front and center and then having this big, uh, you know, go after the corporation's agenda. Did you guys, did he resonate, do you think? Is like, where's his campaign going? I thought he did a pretty good job. I mean, for his first time on that stage, I mean, he really uh, landed, I think, uh, some points that he wanted to make and um, that can be, an intimidating, you know, sort of environment to be for the first time. And I thought he handled himself very well. So, Brandon, you just mentioned tonight that you are supporting Elizabeth Warren. She did not mention climate change once on the debate stage tonight anyway. So I guess what do you have to say to that? Is she really the climate candidate? (laughs) Wow, really putting me on the spot here, Julia. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I do. (laughs) Uh, I I wish she would have talked more about climate, but I thought she did a, a good job at the debate. It's clear uh, she has a different position in this race. You know, uh, she was attacked a lot more uh, than she ever has been. I think that's because she's, you know, uh, moved to the top of the polls. And so uh, when you become, uh, get that front runner status in a political campaign, uh, you become the car- target. And I think we saw a lot of that tonight. Shane? Yeah, so of course, on you know subject matter, I don't agree with any of the candidates on mostly anything they said. But what I did think was interesting, and I think you know Brandon alluded to this, is I thought they all did a really good job comparatively to the debates I'd seen in the past. Uh, in the past, the debate seemed like a clown car to me. Everyone seemed more ridiculous and, and, and ill-prepared than the next. And in this particular instance, even people that I'm not huge fans of, like Beto O'Rourke, I thought they seemed like they were well-prepared. They understood you know what issues they were going to be talking about. They had a better handle on, you know, their own plans and how they were going to how they were going to criticize or at least differentiate from others plans. So, you know, on 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 substance, I didn't like, uh, you know, most of what I heard. But on, uh, you know, as a matter of, of, of people looking more professional and prepared, I thought they did a good job. The one thing I would say is that Joe Biden had moments where you thought, okay, this is what we expected. This is the front runner. He's taking more control. He's articulating better. And then he would just sort of go blank or stutter or say the wrong word or the wrong phrase that was maybe related to a previous subject matter. I think, you know, from that regard, when you look at the front runners, Elizabeth Warren didn't make those mistakes. And I try to think about, you know, how is this going to look against Donald Trump? And I think the sort of stuttering, the forgetting, the weak knees, I think Trump would just humiliate Joe Biden in those moments. I think he'd do a pretty bang up job on Elizabeth Warren, too. But she seemed to be the most prepared, the most sort of willing to stand behind, you know, her record and all that sort of stuff. So I thought that was interesting as well. What did you think, Shane? Uh, did you catch the segment at the end uh, where there was some like bipartisan love? People were talking about yeah, like, their... who's your most surprising friend? Yeah. Did you catch that? What did you think? Did that make you um, any more inclined to be uh, to like any of the candidates and think that there's hope, hopefulness for working together? I liked almost all of their answers, uh, except Tom Steyer's. And and that's not to disparage, of course, the woman he was talking about, just that I think the idea was that you're talking about people who feel differently than you. And and he said some really nice things about someone who might be, you know, geographically and racially different than him. But I think the idea was, you know, can you can you cross the aisle? But 
as you mentioned earlier, Brandon, there was a lot of discussion about John McCain, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, but then I thought about, you know, he was on that debate stage in 2012, uh, or was it, geez, 2008 against, um, or 2007 and 8 against Barack Obama. And so it is funny to see how the politics has shifted where, you know, McCain at that point was considered the awful thing that would destroy the country if we didn't elect Barack Obama. And now half of the Democratic primary candidates are saying, you know, how wonderful he is and what a great man he was and and all that. So it, it is interesting to sort of see how the world has, has changed in the last eight or 12 years. Or Do whatever you think that was a negative campaign? I don't I don't remember it being as negative. Once Palin got involved, it got more toxic. Yeah, negative towards us. I don't remember. I remember our biggest sort of a line of attack was like he was erratic. Can this guy be trusted? Uh, you know, you were deeply involved in that campaign. Obviously, I was I was an observer, but I, I just mean that uh, people seem to have a lot of admiration and respect for him that I would have loved to have heard on the debate stage eight to 12 years ago or 11 years ago or whatever it was. <laughs> what do you guys think of how Biden managed the um, Ukraine you know, controversy, because obviously impeachment proceedings have stemmed from this call that the pre that President Trump uh, did with the newly elected leader of Ukraine looking for dirt on Joe Biden. Uh, we know that Joe Biden's son worked for this energy company in Ukraine. And I've seen headlines like Greens are grappling with the fact that Joe Biden might be the Democratic candidate. And he's got family members who work closely with fossil fuel companies abroad. He himself is, does not have the most aggressive climate uh, platform. So I don't know. Do you think this could end up hurting Biden? Not not obviously the controversy itself and then the fact that it that fossil fuels at the core of it in terms of where his son worked. Is that going to, you know, not get Democrats all that excited if he is the candidate at the end of the day or at least the climate action Democrats? I think the more that people are talking about Hunter Biden and Ukraine and natural gas, uh, the worse it is for Vice President Biden. And so I think that's why they likely had Hunter put out that statement today. And if you saw in the debate, Vice President said, I stand by his statement. And I think they're just trying to move on. Which was something like, this was not right, but it wasn't illegal or anything. He went on Good Morning America, Hunter Biden, and talked about it. Yeah, I think the idea is like, they've, they've made their statement and they want to move on. And yeah. that's probably the best thing for the campaign because what we're talking about with Vice President and Hunter is pales in comparison. It's not even like it's such an apples to oranges, uh, you know, comparison to what President Trump's involvement in, in Ukraine was, which is an impeachable offense. I think it's just another example, at least tonight during the debate of Joe Biden, just, you know, like I mentioned earlier, not being as sharp as he could be in some points. I think the natural gas thing, I mean, may, maybe certain Democrats care about that. I think most Americans understand that natural gas is is not the devil and it's going to be part of our electricity mix. So I don't think it hurts him from that perspective. But interestingly, like Hunter Biden said this morning, um, I exercised poor judgment, but I didn't break the law. And then, you know, tonight in the debate, maybe just a poor word choice, but uh, Vice President Biden said, I stand 100% behind his judgment. Like, but he didn't even stand behind his own judgment. Hunter didn't. So I just, I just think those are the places he needs to get a little bit sharper because this is a weird situation already. I don't know all the facts. I'm not sure that anyone does, but it's already weird. And you just don't want to have additional blunders on top of it, though. I think it was kind of an uncool question of Anderson Cooper to ask anyway. Yeah, he has actually been facing some heat, it looks like, Anderson Cooper, for asking about that uh, head on. So, yeah, so another debate comes to a close. Very limited discussion of climate change. That's often a gripe that people have, but this truly 
was one of the worst debates. It's kind of shocking. Not even a single question. CNN probably thought, you know, we did a whole like forum forum on it. We good. But uh, yeah, here we are. And oh, one other thing we learned tonight is that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a leading voice of the progressive movement, is probably supporting Bernie Sanders. She has, I believe, worked with him in the past, so it's probably not that much of a surprise. He, of course, was back on the debate stage tonight after experiencing a heart attack, and there was a lot of good support and and love for him on the stage tonight. And she seems to be likely supporting him, so I don't know what that will do to this race, but it'll be interesting. It's a big endorsement for Bernie. (laughs) Were you thinking she would go for Warren? I was hoping. What are you going to do now? Well, if we're fortunate enough to have Elizabeth Warren uh, win the Democratic nomination, we will welcome AOC on the team, just like every other Democrat that's supporting another candidate. All right. A call for unity from Brandon Hurlbut. <laughs> we're going to unify. We'll unify whether it's Bernie, whether it's Senator Biden, whether it's Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, whomever, Beto, Buttigieg, any of them will unify behind. And in the meantime, go Nats. Oh, yes. I'll be there for the World Series. Look out, DC. I'm coming. (laughs) All right. And with that, we'll move on to the next segment of our show. Last week, Pacific Gas and Electric intentionally cut the power off to 800,000 electricity customers in Northern California, affecting roughly 2 million people in an attempt to avoid sparking another potentially deadly wildfire. Classes were canceled, businesses closed, food spoiled, and people who rely on medical devices started to panic. As of Saturday, though, PG&E reported that power had been restored to 98% of its customers. There was no fire, but the blackout has caused tempers to flare and political tensions to rise. So, how do we get to a point where California's largest utility is resorting to planned power outages to manage increasingly frequent and destructive wildfires? To understand how we got here, we have to look back at recent history. So we're joined today by Michael Wara, Senior Research Scholar at the Woods Institute for the Environment and Director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at Stanford University. Michael has been closely watching the California wildfire crisis, which I think we can call it that now. He was selected by the state legislature to join California's Commission on the Catastrophic Wildfire Cost and Recovery and deliver recommendations to Governor Gavin Newsom on how to manage this challenge. He was also personally affected by PG&E's planned power outage, so he has some firsthand knowledge of how this is all shaking out. Michael, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. I love the show, and I'm a frequent listener. That's awesome to hear. Well, I want to know what it was like to live through this power outage. What, what were you experiencing? Well, so we lost power for about 40 hours, uh, which is definitely the longest duration outage we've ever had at our house. Um, and... Because our home is relatively new and we have things like smart thermostats and tankless hot water, we basically had no hot water, um, no heat, uh, no electricity, obviously. Uh, Cable internet failed. And because we live in a canyon um, and are dependent on our Wi-Fi service for cellular telephone service, we were also essentially in a kind of communications blackout at our home. So it was inconvenient, uh, you know, but I'll tell you the, the thing that made me the most nervous during the blackout was the, you know, PG&E was quickly overwhelmed. Their, their CRM, their, their customer relations management just could not cope with the, you know, onslaught of inquiry that resulted when they said they were going to do this. The water district where we live was sending me texts every six hours telling me that we were in a water emergency 
and to cut back on all non-essential use. And that was the thing that I was most concerned about through the blackout is the point at which we were going to lose kind of other types of critical infrastructure like water and sewage treatment that are, you know, did, had inadequate backup power supply and just couldn't cope with the outage that of extended duration. Luckily, we didn't. The power came back on. Um, but I think it's entirely possible that if the outage had been four days instead of 40, 40 hours, you know, we would have started to see failures like that across the state. Wow. Yeah, I was seeing tweets of people encountering like CAPTCHAs, like the website codes you have to put in frustratingly trying to enter them as they're like seeking urgent, you know, customer service care and just being so frustrated by this. So clearly there's there's something to follow up on here of what, you know, how was this managed? I guess, tell us how we got here. You've been following California wildfires for a long time. So this didn't just come out of nowhere. So can you walk us through recent fires and, you know, why PG&E did this? So... The first fire that probably people outside of California really heard about with respect to utilities were the the fires that happened in 2017 in Napa and Sonoma counties. And those were caused um, in large part by trees in a windstorm being uh, branches breaking off and flying into wires, knocking wires that were live onto the ground. Um, and subsequently, fires were ignited and... Um, Sonoma County lost five percent of its housing stock in one day, uh, and and this is a this is a county and a part of the state that's already in the midst of a housing crisis, and forty five forty four people died. Um, in the aftermath of those fires, PG&E said, "Wow, this is unacceptable. We're going to do um, some of the things that San Diego Gas and Electric has been doing for a decade since since devastating fires occurred in San Diego's service territory." And we're going to start, you know, an accelerated vegetation management program. And we're going to also consider turning the power off when conditions are dangerous. They executed their first power shutoff in October of 2018 in the wine country, Napa and Sonoma counties. And after that event observed something like 22 instances of, of situations where either wires were on the ground because trees had knocked them there or where large branches had fallen onto wires and probably would have ignited if the wires were hot. So that was probably the first example of like a successful blackout. But PG&E received a lot of really negative press in the aftermath of that, you know, for all the inconvenience it caused. And I think it made them a little bit reluctant to turn power off in November of that year prior to the campfire. And of course, folks probably know that during that event, fires were ignited by PG&E transmission infrastructure that burned down the town of Paradise and killed 85 people. Um, so in the aftermath of that kind of horrific outcome, the utility submitted what we in California call a wildfire mitigation plan to the Public Utility Commission and basically said, we're going to turn the power off potentially to our entire customer base in order to avoid having this happen again. And the PUC vetted that proposal, especially the kind of customer outreach and communication aspects of the proposal, but at the same time emphasized that this would be a last resort option and the other activities that PG&E was undertaking, lots of more tree trimming, grid hardening, grid sectionalizing to allow kind of more targeted shutoffs, weather station deployment to have better situational awareness. Lots of other activities were kind of the first best option. I think what 
was hard to acknowledge, but really important to acknowledge at the time was that we were in a last resort situation as a state. And we continue to be in that situation because implementing all of those other better solutions takes years, probably up to a decade to do effectively, especially at the scale that PG&E needs to implement them because of the size and diversity of PG&E's service territory. Also, in the wake of the campfire that you mentioned, it's important to note that PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, filed for bankruptcy facing $30 billion in liabilities, which complicates all of this. The other California utilities are facing financial risk as well. So state lawmakers have tried to come up with a plan. I know you've worked on it, Michael. Uh, And so they're trying to work out a way to make the utilities financially stable. In theory, that would enable them to invest in these types of wildfire solutions. But lawmakers so far have been hesitant to pass anything that could be labeled a bailout at the expense of ratepayers. So that sort of curbed their enthusiasm for doing anything too bold or to make too many changes to the way liability is currently dealt with in the state. Well, first, Shane, your power was out, right? Uh, mine was. We are not in, in PG&E territory, but our power did go out um, for a few days, or I, not every few days, but overnight last Here in Southern week. California. Here in Southern California. Yeah, SCE, so Southern Oaks California area. Edison's our utility, or your utility, right? Yes. He, he lives out in the boonies, not in L.A., actually, where LADWP is the utility. <laughs> yes. That's right. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> you, I didn't know if you were going to with that. a typical Republican, like he doesn't live in an urban area. He's got to live out like in the exurbs. So while, while, while Brandon mocks me, Michael, I actually have a, a question for you because, you know, on, on the sort of political policymaking side, I remember watching these bills move through the legislature, and I remember personally being frustrated that the utilities and PG&E specifically were painted out to be the sole bad actor, when in reality, um, there were insurance companies and there were the plaintiff's bar lobbying to make sure that we didn't get to a place where we had sort of a rational outcome. For our listeners who don't know what inverse condemnation means, it's basically a legal construct where... If X happens, then then you're liable. So it's strict liability, whether or not you were negligent, whether or not you were reckless, whether or not you took any action that helped you know further the bad act. And so for PG&E's case, they've got transmission infrastructure in the northern part of California, which can be a lot more rural and spaced out with national parks and state parks, uh, very different than Southern California. And inverse condemnation, in my view, is what leads to these blackouts because PG&E is going to be held strictly liable for any fire that occurs uh, if there's any, you know, any interaction whatsoever with trees and their infrastructure or their infrastructure has any part of it. And so, Michael, I wanted to ask you, did you have sort of an insider's view or were you able to get a sense of why the state legislature ended up where they did? And do you think there were better outcomes? I know what I think, but curious if you think there were better legal and regulatory outcomes that could have been you know, arrived at that might have made these blackouts, but also fires less likely to occur? Well, I think Early on, it did seem as if inverse condemnation was a really important part of the story and the strict liability framework that we apply to damages caused by these fires uh, in in California uniquely. But I think the other thing to reflect on is that it is unique for utilities to cause $30 billion losses repeatedly year after year. And that's what we've observed in California. I have to imagine that if any of these fires went before a jury on a negligence standard that the defense uh, would have a hard time uh, convincing juries at this point, certainly California juries, that PG&E exercised a reasonable standard of care 
to protect its ratepayers from this from these catastrophes. And so there's you know certainly the strict liability issues matter, but but I guess from the broader policy perspective, I think the issues that are raised by this have to do with um, how you know the degree to which we can reduce the risk of fire and especially of home ignitions, right? Like destruction of communities from fires using policy levers uh, and the degree to which we can use the power of government and the oversight that the Public Utility Commission has to, to change, to create incentives, better incentives for safety and hopefully safety culture at PG&E. So, Michael, that's where I wanted to you know, sort of dig in with you a little bit. So we have a bankrupt utility, uh, maybe the first climate change you know, bankruptcy, uh, major utility. We have the technology available to deal with this in many ways, to create decentralized energy with microgrids uh, that can be powered with um, you know, renewable technologies and battery stored or energy stored with batteries and such. Uh, we can put batteries in homes and whatnot and aggregate those. Uh, so we have technologies available, and we, ha- we, we think this is going to continue to happen, right? I mean, this is going to be the new normal. So we also have, you mentioned the California Public Utilities Commission. We have a regulatory structure that I don't hear a lot of positive feedback about. So what is the way forward? What, what do we do to address this? Well, I think the PUC has already kind of charted a course for, for PG&E and for Southern California Edison towards grid hardening. And there's going to be a lot of investment over the next decade to harden their systems to make them more resistant and less error prone uh, and so less likely to spark fires. But at the same time, I, I agree with you that, that we do need to think about customer-sided solutions to this issue because... You know, I'll just say in my family, the value of not being blacked out and also in particular being blacked out and not knowing when the power might turn back on. PG&E said it might be five to seven days when they turn the power off for us. And that is a major disruption. And it's worth a lot of money to avoid. And I think many people who have the means in California in this week, having survived the blackout last week, are thinking very differently about battery storage and or generators as Michael, options. Michael, can I, can, I can I jump on that point? Because I think you made a, a very prescient point, which is people who have the resources. But some people don't have the resources, and, and obviously protecting them from blackouts is equally important. And so kind Ooh, of piggybacking. Oh, no, come wow. on. <laughs> Pick, Showing a little empathy over here from a conservative? Whoa. <laughs> Pig, this guy. Uh, <laughs> piggy, piggybacking on Brandon's point. You look at PUC and you start to think about, well, we talk about why haven't we undergrounded some of these transmission lines? Why aren't utilities permitted to rate base behind the meter solutions, uh, given a little bit more freedom to experiment with microgrids and storage, and as Brandon said, aggregated storage? And, you know, people would say, well, you have ratepayer concerns, but from where I sit and you look at the billions and tens of billions of dollars in damage that have been done, lives that have been lost, homes that have been destroyed— and you say, oh, it'll cost $175 million to bury these lines. That doesn't sound like a lot of money to me. And I'm wondering why PUC isn't a little bit more forward-looking with what they'll let utilities do. Because if you leave it up to the customer, only those with money can, can use these customer-sided solutions. But if you leave it up to the utility to rate base, they can make sure that the entire community that they serve is protected. And I'm just wondering why that's such an uphill climb. Why aren't they allowed to do that? Because they want to do some of that stuff. Well, I think the the regulators in California confront a very difficult problem, which is that rates in California are already high. And 
wildfire costs are going to be layered on top of a, a rate structure, which in, which in California is already one of the highest in the country. We pride ourselves on our energy efficiency here. And so the bill is, is lower, even though the rate is high. But that's, you know, cold comfort for any kind of commercial or industrial customer. And it's of limited comfort for someone who lives in the hotter parts of the state that has to rely on air conditioning. So what do we do? You know, the, the undergrounding option is incredibly expensive. You need to understand that, you know, a couple million dollars a mile, best case, times 10 to 20,000 miles that are potentially eligible for undergrounding. We're looking at, you know, 40, 20 to $40 billion of investment that would be required to make a difference with undergrounding. That's probably too much to put in rates. Um, so we need to find more cost-effective solutions, more targeted solutions. I do think that energy access and kind of the covenant that we all have, where we agree as a society that we're going to provide affordable electric power to everyone in our society, is a really important one for California to stay focused on and to keep. I think it probably requires innovation in terms of how affordability programs work in the state and maybe more allowance to support backup power solutions as a part of affordable access in California in the high risk areas. But I would say also that we're this is early days and this is the first major blackout that we've been through and the policy community and the legislative community in California is really just starting to pivot to this issue and to think about the full significance of what has occurred and what's likely to recur on a regular basis even this year in California. Yeah, you know, we're talking about this on a political show because even though Democrats dominate the legislature in California, this is an intensely political issue. Uh, and there's, I don't think, tons of consensus right now around what to do going forward. Or it seems like there's a lack of action and people are frustrated. And, and they're frustrated looking backward, I think, because as a Susie Cagle wrote in The Guardian this week, uh, quote, by choosing to shut down the grid this week, the utility might have stopped another spark and stopped another massive bill. She went on to note that PG&E has invested millions in state lobbying, paid out $4.5 billion in profits to shareholders over the last five years, millions in executive bonuses while deferring necessary maintenance and repairs to its system. Governor Newsom even said recently that the scope and duration of PG&E's outage was unacceptable and that it was, quote, the direct result of decades of PG&E prioritizing profit over public safety. So is it really all about money here? Are utilities doing the right thing by their people or are they protecting their bottom line and getting away with not having done the right investments at the right time? And then what should policymakers do about it? So I guess I tend to push back on the narrative that this is all about money. I know people who work in the PG&E operation, you know, kind of up and down the organization, former students, also folks that work in grid operations. And I'll just tell you that, you know, if you're a PG&E employee this year, what you want to do is not kill people. You don't want to have to go home and explain to your kid how, you know, you do a good, you do your best, but people still died. And they've seen that on the news and heard about it in school. Maybe their school was canceled because of a smoke day, right? That's the last thing that anybody within that organization wants to have to confront in their personal life, let alone their professional life. And so they are strongly motivated to prefer safety over convenience. And I think that's really what led to the shutoff that we saw uh, last week. Now, is it also in PG&E's financial interest? And maybe that's a factor for management? Absolutely. Right. Uh, any any fi fire of any significant scale would be like throwing a hand grenade into the bankruptcy right now. And so 
they need to avoid that at all costs. And I think that the management is strongly incentivized to avoid fires. So did it work? Was the outage effective? Is it cost effective to shut off the power instead of taking the risk of a fire? I mean, I think the answer is pretty clearly, yeah, it is. The, the estimates that I've made and others, um, I, I'd point people to a blog post by Catherine Wolfram at the Haas Energy Institute that came out today, show that, you know, maybe costs were on the, on the order of one to two and a half billion dollars of the blackout that just occurred. But compare that to a fire on the order of the campfire or the Napa Sonoma fire siege of 2017. This is a you know factor of 10 lower cost. And so it's probably worth doing. I want to bring up the point around the cost because it is something being reported on and talked about, I think, because of the frustration that people feel, you know, and the average person living in California may not be thinking about utility regulatory processes and resilience and all that. And so they just see that PG&E filed for bankruptcy following the campfire. Uh, They face something like $30 billion in liabilities compared to their $20 billion market cap. And so I think people just see that um, and they get frustrated. But I totally hear you that the utility workers want to serve people. Uh, I, I, I very much agree with that. Um, I think it does just then spur this co- policy discussion of what now, as Brandon brought up. And in California, there's a question of, do we want to publicize our utilities? The city of San Francisco already tried to buy PG&E's infrastructure for $2.5 billion. PG&E did not agree to do that. The city wanted to take back control of, of their grid and their infrastructure. So I think there's going to be a lot of like policy discussion to come from this it's going to get heated. Yeah, and Michael, one of the things, and I, I, I wanted to press you on this a little bit. I, I actually, I, I tend to agree with your narrative that I don't think the utilities are, are, are trying to save money here. I think they're trying to avoid fires. But a lot of the time on this show, we argue, uh, all three of us argue about, you know, how do we get to certain goals, whatever that goal is, 100% renewable or whatever. And, you know, we, I make the case that I don't think the technology is available. Brandon makes the case that it can be. But this is not that because we look at what like Green Mountain Power is doing on the East Coast. We look at I, I just read I don't remember if it was Arkansas or where it was, but there's a transmission line that goes over a mountain range. And, you know, it's very unreliable because there are issues. And so they built a microgrid and the utility was able to rate base that. Why are we looking at states that are far less progressive from an energy perspective than California, who are implementing solutions that are very well commercialized, that are very possible, um, and they're rate-based, and the entire community understands that if Green Mountain Power is drawing from your battery during what would otherwise be an outage or during you know a time of peak demand, even though that battery is in your home, it is a grid asset, and there's no problem with socializing that cost. I just don't know how California, the way it is politically, uh, doesn't view the world that way. And I'm, I'm hoping you have a little bit of insight because it is really driving me nuts. Well, I think California was, was walking down that road when the fires hit them. You know, and, and part of what's happened is that assets like that, you know, assets like microgrids that are rate based and, 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 and kind of aggregated battery storage that, that is rate based, you know, rely on the quality of the utility balance sheets for finance. And the PG&E is obviously not investment grade, it's bankrupt. And the other two utilities were on the verge of a transition to non-investment grade this summer when the legislature passed the wildfire fund bill, which basically was that was designed to de-risk the, the utilities to some degree to allow them to start to make these kinds of investments 
but I think we're still in the process of standing up that entity, and 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 there's been a lot of focus on that. There, there's only so there's only so many things that the PUC can do at once, and I think some of these issues around microgrids and um, distributed storage have kind of fallen by the wayside. Meanwhile, in California, of course, there's a very healthy industry um, that's that's on the non-regulated side that's very interested in picking up the ball and running with it. And now the regulators have to investigate this shutoff because Gavin Newsom just just tasked them with doing that. So one more item for the to-do list. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Michael, you know, so many of these uh, Democrats running for president have put out really bold, ambitious uh, climate plans. Um, and they would love to have the type of majorities uh, in the legislature that we have here in California. So is there a scenario, do you think, where um, the Democrats here, starting with the governor and the majority in the legislature, could pass something that sort of uh, creates this new energy uh, sort of system and vision that many of the presidential candidates are talking about? Because some people think that in order to have um, that happen, you need a forcing mechanism like a crisis. And so several million people being without power uh, and something that could become the new normal. Do you see a scenario where we could really shake up uh, the current regulatory system um, here? What would you if you were Gavin Newsom, what would you do? And do you think he's doing enough? I agree that this is this can be viewed as an opportunity and not just as a crisis. And, you know, the things that all of you are suggesting as, as potential solutions are, you know, if we're brave enough in California to kind of think big about this problem, I think they become possible and, and become a part of a sort of California-specific Green New Deal. I think the opportunities to, for the state to step in and help residents make their communities safer, you know, try to, try to, try to make sure that the low-income or fixed-income resident who's your neighbor does the things they need to do to their home and their property so it doesn't burn your house down. Um, are really important. And that, that, that's going to employ a lot of people. It's going to make the state more resilient to climate change. And all the backup power solutions are going to make the state much more resilient when we have a major earthquake. We've just gone through th two kind of minor earthquakes in the last 24 hours or so, 4.7s, 4.8. And those are just kind of a little reminder of what's possible and what will eventually occur in both Northern and Southern California, kind of inevitably. Fire, I think, is a way to make our community more, much more resilient and to create wins across a whole bunch of political dimensions for the governor. I think it's early and his team and the legislature are really just beginning to grapple. I have a specific question for you on these technologies we've been talking about, because uh, Ben Kellison, who's on our research team at, the, at Wood Mackenzie Power and Renewables, noted that solar and storage is effective for hours and not necessarily days unless you bigger, build a really big system. And a lot of people actually turn to fossil fuel generators in recent days around the fires and in other past events. So how do you balance California's climate policies with its resilience policies? Because there could be a tension there. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to put that to you. Oh, there's absolutely going to be attention, right? I mean, you can go out and buy a pretty decent generator for two thousand uh, dollars, and you can, and you know, you're not going to get into a, a reasonably sized home solar and storage solution for probably much less than twenty. Um, so I think 
I think we're, um, you know, there are there are definitely trade-offs, and that's a question where the state really has to ask itself, you know, do we want to have systems that only work as backup power, or do we want to create a situation where we have these widely distributed, you know, storage assets that can be utilized for grid services, except when PG&E announces that in 48 hours there might be a blackout because of fire safety, at which point charge the batteries, right, and get ready. And then, well, I wanted to ask, too, because you mentioned your house is, um, it sounds like you've electrified everything or almost everything in your home. And then when the power goes out, obviously, those appliances uh, will lose power as well. So I feel like if I'm a person who's just getting introduced to this technology, I don't want to electrify everything if I'm even more vulnerable. You know, what do you say to people who are nervous about this transition to clean tech? Is it is it possible it's less reliable? And what, if someone thinks that, what would you yeah, say to well, them? So- one thing to clarify is we have gas heat, gas stove, and gas hot water, but everything except the stove is dependent on either a smart thermostat or system electronics. And so we lost our gas, effectively our gas appliances in a blackout because of the technology that's used to operate them. I think as we move to an energy future with better controls and more advanced controls, Backup power is going to have to be a part of the solution because there's it's just not feasible to have 100% reliability in the power system. I think it's going to become, in California, increasingly challenging as, as climate change gets worse. So some backup power, if only to drive controls on, on a smart home, is going to be really important. Shane was waving his finger at me like, how dare I ask that question? But I feel like it's something that people in this clean tech sector don't talk enough about, about bringing people along. It's the question I get at Thanksgiving, like, well, how does that work? What happens with my electric vehicle if there's flooding? And I feel like people don't want to go there for some reason, but I feel like you should just attack that question head on. No, totally. And I, and I was, I was given Julia dirty looks, but I've had <laughs> questions like that too, where people say, how can you be behind, you know, electrif- electrification as a decarbonization strategy? Because look at California. And I hate those types of arguments. The, the, the issue is not that electricity is, you know, innately unreliable. The issue is we haven't invested in the distribution system and behind the meters technology, behind the meter technology to make everything work. And my beef um, is that people would rather you know blame a certain fuel source than actually step up and make the investments needed to both get the decarbonization benefits and the reliability benefits. One thing that was um, I dealt with at the Department of Energy is we had Superstorm Sandy while I was there. Uh, you know, right now people are are using this uh, blackout crisis as saying, well, look, you know, you shouldn't go EV because how are you going to like charge your car? Uh, when the power is out. But what we dealt with during that massive storm was many of the gas stations didn't have electricity. So people that wanted to, you know, fill their car up with gasoline couldn't because they couldn't pump it out of the station, you know. So this has many different effects, you know, and... um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how the blackout affects the the building electrification conversation that's occurring in California. Over the last couple of months, I think about 10 or 11 jurisdictions have banned new gas connections in new residential and low-rise commercial construction. And, you know, this is a concern, right? If these rolling blackouts are a part of the future, then um, those buildings probably need some sort of backup generation um, or, or at least would want to consider it. And maybe that would, you know, raise some flags for uh 
local governments that are considering the step. I personally think this is going to be uh, a much less, you know, that the, these blackouts are going to decrease in scope over time, even if they remain a feature of the California landscape because of fire risk. But so, so I don't think it's a it's a huge concern. And, and and frankly, that all of the controls that are becoming a part of all the devices in our home mean that it doesn't matter what kind of fuel you have. You won't be able to use it if you don't have electric power. Um, and that's just a reality of the modern home. And we need to deal with that and provide solutions today. So what happens next? We talked about the commission you were a part of. You issued recommendations to the governor. Uh, one of them, I think, was talking about this inverse condemnation issue um, and that it might need some reform, if I'm not mistaken. Remind us what those recommendations were, how the legislature reacted, and then just what you think is going to happen next. Well, we made recommendations with respect to inverse condemnation reform. The legislature has, and the governor both, have no appetite for engaging on that. We made some modest recommendations with respect to insurance reform, which were essentially also not acted on. I think the insurance situation in California is going to become really problematic. And, and honestly, if there's a financial benefit that's not priced of the shutoff that just occurred, it's the fact, it's the, it's the impact on the insurance market that another major wildfire loss would have. I mean, that is a ticking time bomb in California. And we we managed to keep the thing ticking rather than have it go off last week. And, and that's, that's really valuable to anyone who lives in wildfire country. They may not appreciate the magnitude of it, but certainly those that are struggling to find insurance today or insurance they can afford um, will tell you that this is a huge problem. And then the last thing we recommended was creation of essentially a pooled insurance mechanism for the state's utilities that would protect ratepayers from rate shock associated with wildfires, make sure that victims actually get paid in a timely manner, and stabilize the finances of the utilities. And that part of what we recommended was enacted in, in legislation that passed uh, back in July and was signed into law by the governor. And it's really the reason that Edison and Sempra were not downgraded to junk this summer prior to the part of the wildfire season that we're in right now. In terms of what comes next, you know, I think it's I my main hope right now is that we get into the rainy season without a major utility cost fire or a fire of a large fire of any sort in the state. And then I think we really need to ask ourselves what we can do to help everyone in California, especially low and moderate income people, weather this crisis. So you said there's no appetite to address inverse condemnation because I guess that would let the utilities off the hook. Walk us through the politics here briefly of why there's no appetite to address sure. inverse condemnation. So so the thing to remember, the change that would occur is, is one from strict liability to a negligent standard. So if the utility were negligent, it would still pay. If it were not negligent, if there was reform, then maybe it wouldn't have to pay for the losses associated with the fire. But of course, you can't just like make risk and risk of financial loss go away. What you're really doing with that change is shifting who bears the risk from utilities to property insurers. And I think the real reason that inverse condemnation reform has not occurred is that the proponents of it have not come up with a solution that would protect homeowners from the potential impacts of that shift in liability regime. So if you fix the utility situation by fixing inverse condemnation reform, you're liable to throw a wrench into an already delicate situation 
with respect to homeowners insurance in these high fire risk areas. And the science says that as California becomes more arid, the risk of wildfires will increase. And so we are only at the beginning of this conversation, I think. And with that, Michael, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and walking us through this. Thanks so much for the conversation. Really appreciate it. So we covered a lot there with Michael, but I wanted to follow up on a few things. First, it was interesting to learn about the hesitancy among lawmakers to address inverse condemnation, something that is unique to California, around how liability is treated for utilities. And I guess I just like thinking about it from the consumer perspective. If I was someone affected by wildfires, I think I just want to know that I'm going to be taken care of. Someone will pay this bill. And so do I care which entity that is? I think so. I mean, look, utilities have a job, and that's to deliver safe, reliable, affordable energy. And I think they do a really good job. I understand that there's a lot going on right now, and fires can be difficult to to avoid. But here's the thing that, that really stands out to me, and Michael mentioned this, but we saw this in the legislature last year as well, is, well, if utilities aren't bearing the burden then it would have to go to insurers. And people say that like it's a bad thing. And I'm like, well, what the hell do they do then? They collect my premiums. And in theory, then if there's a problem, they pay out. And that's why people, I think, hate health insurance companies. You pay your health insurance every single month, and then you get sick, and you're still two grand out of pocket. So the utility delivers power. Thank you. Good job. They're not also my insurer. So I just don't get why there's any debate whatsoever around the concept of once there is a catastrophe to your property for which you pay a premium, that the insurer should have to come in and fill that gap. That is the entire purpose of their existence. And if people say, well, the premiums will be too high or they just won't insure you, that's garbage because we have a state that happens to be pretty willing to use its legislative authority to force people to do things if they want to participate in this market. So you're in California. It's hot. It's dry. There are fires. You offer insurance. Do it the right way or don't do it at all. But I don't know how we just say, hey, let's, let's have our utilities serve as both power providers and insurers at the same time. I don't get that logic at all. I think you have to then make sure the insurance providers offer insurance. There has to be some forcing mechanism there because I think there's a lot of people who just aren't getting the insurance they need right now. Yeah. Does the math work? I mean, between... The bankruptcy of PG&E, I mean, this bankrupted the utility. Are we going to be bankrupting insurers as well? Like, who, ultimately, like, does the math add up? Well, it doesn't. And that's where I go back to what I was saying is let's invest in making sure this doesn't keep happening. Let's right. invest in a more distributed grid. Let's invest in undergrounding. He was saying undergrounding everywhere. That was not my suggestion. My suggestion was when you don't have a distributed solution, when that is not possible for whatever reason, then underground those lines. But no, you're right. If we're just saying who's going to pay for it, well, guess what? No one's going to pay for it. There's not enough money. I mean, what I'm most interested in in this entire debate is I feel like, as usual, California is a little bit of a postcard you know, for the future in the sense that we are on the front lines of dealing with this climate catastrophe here right now. And this is going to be stuff, whether it's wildfires or hurricanes or whatnot, that is going to be going to other parts of the country. And so this is an opportunity for California to lead and to, you know, show the way forward, create a model here to deal with this stuff that then other states can adopt or the federal government, you know, can adopt. And I'm not hearing any big, bold solutions. I hear some like tinkering, you know, maybe we could bury a few lines here. Maybe we can do a little subsidy here for some, uh, you know, solar and storage or something. Yeah. But I'm not hearing like, let's, let's reimagine how this system can yeah. work better. And I want to get out of just the technology solutions. We need better forest management. We need to think about the way we construct cities and where development goes. It's true that development has moved into forests, but also that those communities have just 
changed because of hotter weather and it's only expected to get worse. So what's the plan for that? And all I've heard from our politicians, and I'm sorry, I know we have, uh, you know, a committed Democrat here to my right. But the, the reality of it is all I've heard is it's fun to punish uh, PG&E. You hear Gavin Newsom talk about what they did is unacceptable and they should provide $100 you know, to each of their customers who had an outage. That is not a forward-looking solution. When did we get to a point where it was more fun to whip someone while they're down than it was to think, instead of making them the bad guy, how do we use our policy levers to help them create a safer future? And I've not heard a single word about that but yet. I think there's a lot of built-up angst from previous years. You know, I mentioned some numbers that were in a Guardian article about how much executives get paid or how much investors in PG&E make. And if you're just an average California resident that's not an investor in PG&E, you're pissed looking backward. And that's where they put the blame. And I don't I don't judge the people who work at PG&E for that. And that's the business model that we're in. you're challenging the investor-owned utility model. And there is a reason for that model. It's because it takes capital to build tens of billions of dollars of infrastructure. Yeah, I don't take a position on whether that's the right model or not. But I know that this is a hot debate. We see the rise of community choice aggregation already in California where communities control their power procurement. And you're seeing increased calls now for public utilities where they even control their own poles and wires. So I don't know. This is the beginning of like a potential total reformation of California's energy system. And the wildfires are at the core of it. Yeah, I think where we may have some common ground here, Shane, is like if the Democrats can't do it here, it doesn't give me a lot of hope that we can do it at the national level. I mean, if we can't, we have a Democratic supermajority, a progressive Democratic governor, and a climate crisis on our hands. So if we can't deal, if we can't solve that here with, with, those, with that sort of environment, how are we going to do it at the federal level? I actually think that this is where, and you know, I mean this sincerely, not just because I'm conservative, I think this is where having a supermajority is a huge hindrance to progress. Because I think there could have been, Republicans like to, the pro-business Republicans, the traditional Republicans, they understand the IOU model. They understand what insurance companies are supposed to do, and they do like to build things and make money. And so I think having someone at the table who said, hey, instead of just whipping PG&E, let's think about how we take this capital and turn it into something productive. But when you're not forced to negotiate with anyone, it's your largest lobbies that stand out. And in this case, it was the plaintiff's bar and it was the insurance lobby, and there was no one counter-messaging that. When it comes to inverse condemnation and reforming it or not. You well, mean? And just making progress. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just think that, you know, utilities traditionally, even progressive ones, have had pretty good relationships with Republicans and Democrats, which is not something we could say about a lot of, you know, the industries. Do you guys about. think that the key stakeholders here, meaning the legislature, the governor, the Public Utilities Commission, the uh, utilities themselves, are they dealing with this in a sort of holistic comprehensive manner or do they just see this as a one-off we had to solve this these wins on this day and this is like how we solved it and then when that happens again we'll do the same thing or so is it are we taking this one-off approach to each instance or do you think people are dealing with this comprehensively it feels like now they're trying to do it but i don't know i don't know not enough yeah i'd love to see and i'm not arguing this is the solution at all but i think you have to have ideas put forward to have a solution i'd love to see you know the three investor-owned utilities and even the munis frankly um tasked with if you were king for a day capital was not an issue we would approve anything you put forward rubber stamp no discussion what is the solution to this problem from your perspective And I'm not saying the state should then just adopt it, but I'd like to see that because I'll bet you there's some creativity in the private sector that we're not getting a handle on at all. Shane, I'm feeling so much affection for you today. You're talking about like (laughs) just transitions for people that don't have the resources. Now you're talking about thinking big and like big policy solutions. Like it might just be the V-neck. You might just like the (laughs) (laughs) V-neck. So hipster. So cool. But this is how I think about policy is like 
you know, what solves the problem? And then we can work backwards from there. You know, if there's not enough resources for this particular thing, you know, how do we address that? But it just feels right now, and I don't feel like I have the, the total expertise to make like a concrete conclusion on this, but it feels, you know, right now that it's like tinkering and we're not really addressing it in the way we need to. And now it's time to say something nice. It's the segment where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Shane, you just watched a bunch of Democrats get on stage at the debate tonight. Any good things to say after this moment? Well, yeah. So, so interestingly, you know, I struggled with finding one. So I knew that in watching the debate, I was able to going to be able to find, you know, at least one redeeming thing about a Democrat that I could say tonight. Interestingly, I did get my idea from the debate, but it was none of the debaters. It was from Anderson Cooper, who mentioned um, Ellen DeGeneres and some you know, scandal is a weird word for, for being kind. But uh, a lot of the, the rigmarole that 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 arose around her sitting next to George W. Bush and laughing during a Dallas Cowboys game. And so my say something nice is about Ellen DeGeneres, because I understand that Democrats are upset about, you know, a lot of things during the Bush administration. I actually think that, you know, in hindsight, they're probably, you know, pretty impressed with George W. Bush comparatively, at least to what they view as uh, Donald Trump presidency. But it is just so important for all of us to remember that it is always okay to be kind a hundred percent of the time. And it doesn't matter if you like someone necessarily, or maybe you like them, but you don't like everything about them. You don't like their beliefs. You don't like, you know, what they've done in public office or whatever. But I thought Ellen really did a good job standing up for, not, not even standing up for herself, but just pointing out that we can have disagreements on a number of things and still be human and still exercise kindness. And I just really want everyone, especially in politics, but really in anything to take that to heart. I don't have to agree with the decisions you make in your day-to-day life, how you vote or what you do, but that doesn't mean that you're not a human being completely deserving of kindness. And I'm glad that two people who probably view the world very differently are able to get along like they are. And I don't think that's something that we should be upset about. I think that's something we should celebrate. Do you think President Trump is kind? I mean, I don't know him personally, but I imagine that he has a lot of kindness in him. I think a lot of people do. Um, I think that, oh, that running the world is probably a pretty difficult job, and I'm not qualified I'm to speak on, on, on how that makes one behave. This out. This is going to go on forever. Shane, do you think what we're doing at the border is kind? Shane, are, is our people practicing what you're preaching? Yeah. I think what you're trying to say, Brandon, is that there's maybe a line where it's okay to say, no, I will not sit next to that person and share a laugh. I think it's okay to criticize people when you disagree with what they're doing. I also think that, you know, elected officials and even employees of the federal government are required to enforce certain laws, whether they want to or not. Um, It's up to Congress to pass those laws. So, you know, I think there's a much bigger conversation there. But yes, I always think it's important to be kind, uh, whether or not you like the person that you're interacting with or or over social media in person or anywhere else. All right, Brandon, speaking of being kind, we got some kindness to give to the Republicans today. No, (laughs) not today. Not today. today. (laughs) Um, But I do appreciate that a Republican called out Rudy Giuliani. Uh, And from all, you know, people you least expect John Bolton, uh, not, National security, uh, advisor. national security advisor uh, to the president, former national security advisor right. to the president, not somebody that um, I have uh, any much respect for, to be honest. Uh, but he called Rudy Giuliani a human hand grenade, <laughs> which I mean, what Giuliani is doing out there is like a threat. Uh, it's unbelievable. And so I, I wish more Republicans would stand up and call this stuff out. 
and people that worked in the administration and have seen what's going on behind the curtain, uh, they, I think they have a duty. They have a duty. Now is the time, you know, because we are going to have a great debate in this country about what's acceptable and what's not. Uh, and if you saw behavior, you know, that is not acceptable, then you need to, you need to call it out. And so John Bolton stood up and said, this guy's, you know, human hand grenade. <laughs> All right. I feel like we kind of came to an end here, like the Democratic debate where you found your surprising friend. So we're going to end it there. Uh, this is Political Climate. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And you can, of course, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, pretty much all the podcasting platforms. And we're sitting here. It's past nine o'clock in the evening with Victoria Simon, our producer, who makes this show possible. So thanks, Victoria. Uh, and be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Really means a lot. Really helps other people find the show. So thanks so much. And we'll see you next week. Are we on Reach? I don't even know what that is. It's a new app. Like, like, cause you're short, you have to like reach for stuff. Oh, <laughs> like, like, like a stool. No. Julia, <laughs> it's it a, a new stool? app. Have you heard of it? No. What does it do? Yeah, you're just not like in the loop, but like reach is this new app. that uh, It's a great tool that lots of people are on. <laughs> wow. You're really describing it really yeah, well. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. For what? For us not to be on it, because that's like you're the millennial. You're supposed to know about these things. How do I? How do I know about reaching? All you right, don't? folks. Sorry to our audience that may be on reach. Uh, we will extend a hand <laughs> to you at some point in the future. By the way, I just learned what reach was like an hour ago. And it is a. It's a campaign tool. We're definitely not on it. <laughs> All right. Good night. <laughs>